G'day friends and welcome to another episode of our Equip podcast where we go back and look at what we learnt on Sunday. We've been tracing our way through hermeneutics or how to read the Bible better and on Sunday we saw the first of a few principles I'm going to be laying out for us in the next few weeks uh, which was that when we read the Bible we need to make sure that textual context is the most important kind of context that we look at. So we went through a couple of verses that could be easily misunderstood if we appeal just to historical or cultural context or even to literary or theological context, making connections elsewhere across the Bible. Those are good things to do, but they can't come at the expense of what's immediately there in the text and around the text that we're looking at. Uh, So hopefully that's uh, something that you've been working into your own Bible reading over the last week or so. And this coming Sunday, we'll be looking at another principle in terms of uh, just how to to make sure we don't fall into these kind of mistakes when we're reading. We also went through Isaiah chapter 11 as an example of how to exegete the Old Testament. You might remember that word exegesis. The ex part is like in the word exit, uh, meaning to come out from. And so... Uh, what we're trying to do here is is get the meaning to come out from the text rather than trying to put our own meaning into it. So we went through a a number of questions that sort of fitted that coma framework, C for context, O for observation, M for meaning, A for application, in an attempt to exegete the text and, and discover the meaning that's there. Now, what I want to do for you on the podcast today is I just want to give you some more observations around this text in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, There may have been, as we went through, some questions that you didn't get answered. There may have been some things that you noticed and wanted to think more about. Uh, Or there may be things that you just missed entirely because, of course, you know, we only had a short amount of time with the text. And so I want to just sort of dump a whole lot of observations on you as an example of the sort of things that exegesis can turn up. And I'm going to do it in two parts. The first part will be longer. The second part will be a little shorter. Uh, The first part will be where we read through the text as an Israelite reading it for the first time. So they're there, they're in context, they're in exile in Assyria, or perhaps a bit later they're even in exile in Babylon, uh, and, uh, and they're hearing this text. How would they respond? What would they be thinking? Remember, that's the first place we want to start when we read. Read it in its original context, text in time. Uh, And then secondly, we're going to do a reading for us today. So here we are, post-AD, post the coming of Christ. And of course, this text gains new significance as a result of that. So if you've got the text in front of you, Isaiah 11, verse uh, 1 to 16, I won't read it back out. Uh, Hopefully you're still familiar with what's there. Uh, But if you haven't read it yet, or you missed Sunday, now would be a good time just to pause and to read through the text for yourself, and then we'll exegete it together. Okay, so assuming you're familiar with the text, uh, you might remember that this uh, passage moves in sort of a few main chunks. The first is verses 1 to 5, where we meet this shoot or this root, this shoot from the root, as it were, of the stump of Jesse, this person that's going to come and um, bring justice for Israel. Remember, they're in exile. Um, They're wondering, what have we done to deserve this? 
And up until now, Isaiah's laid out the case that it's their sin and God's now disciplining or judging them. Uh, and so they're, they're wondering, well, is this forever? No, someone will come and bring deliverance. He will bring righteousness and he will bring justice. So verses 1 to 5 detail who that person is and what they're like. Verses 6 to sort of 10 uh, detail the kind of world that this person will bring. And then verses 10 to 16, and you'll notice I'm saying 10 twice there. <laughs> it's a bit of a hinge between the two sections. Verses 10 to 16 uh, detail the, the coming together of all the Israelites that have been in exile. So there are those three sections. In the first one, verses 1 to 5, there are two parts as well. We see in verse 1 to the first part of verse 3, up to where it says fear of the Lord. This is sort of the character of the, the servant of God. And then from 3b, so he shall not judge, etc., down to the end of 5, we see his actions. Now, I'll just bring out a few observations for you in that, that, that opening section uh, 1 to 3a. Um, you might notice that this, this imagery of shoot and root and stump was there back in chapter 6. So if you picture that, that you're an Israelite reading through this prophecy of Isaiah, hearing it read out, uh, you know, just a few minutes ago we heard that there was a, a stump because God has cut down the nation of Israel because of their sin. But from the stump will grow a new shoot. There will be a remnant, a people that God will still work through, a righteous people who love him and who are still going to be used for his purposes. So even though the nation is done with at this moment, it's in exile, there's still people who cling to the Lord and obey him. That's the remnant. And so that we sort of get this call back to the remnant there in verse 1. Um, interesting that the, um, I guess the, the question of who this is, is multifaceted. As we go through, and we noted this on Sunday, it definitely sounds like it's one person. But given that we're starting here with this imagery of the, the shoot and the root and the stump that was there in chapter 6, remember that that represents a remnant, a righteous group of people in Israel's number. And so it, it may be that verses 2 to 5 at least raise the question for the Israelites, should this be us? Are, are we part of the remnant upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest and, and who will give us wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord, etc., etc., etc. Are we actually embodying these qualities in ourselves? And you might find that some who read or, or listen to this go, I don't care about those things. Uh, God's abandoned us. Ah, well, that just shows you're not part of the remnant, uh, at least for now. Uh, but you can choose to be. Uh, if instead you trust what the Lord's doing here and, and choose to fear him, and then he'll fit you with these qualities so that you can be used by him in the future. Um, and so there's this sort of multifaceted element here where, at least for the Israelites, they wonder, could this be us? Uh, but then as we read through, of course, we discover that uh, actually this is an individual. <laughs> uh, Israel should ask the question, am I like this? But uh, there is also the, the sense of, this is someone rather than just a group. What do we learn about this someone? Well, of course, the, the spirit 
of the Lord rests upon them. And that's repeated four times there, spirit, 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 spirit. So it's trying to head us over the head with the fact that this is someone that uh, God's Holy Spirit is empowering and equipping to serve him. Uh, and this person has a number of qualities that I read out a moment ago, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might. Uh, but the most important of them is the fear of the Lord, because that's repeated twice right at the end. This person isn't just someone who is wise or mighty or knowledgeable. They have a relationship of reverence and awe and even perhaps holy terror before the Lord. They know their place before him. Simultaneously, they know that it's the Lord who's brought this judgment occasioning their exile, but it's also the Lord who is loving and faithful and will deliver. So this person is someone who has that insight. That's their character. Uh, we then um, move on and uh, in, in verse 3b onwards, we see a number of qualities that this person sort of puts into practice. They won't judge by what they, their eyes see or decide by what their ears hear. And again, for an Israelite, the echoes of chapter 6 are there, if you want to go back and read it, where um, Israel itself doesn't see. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. Isaiah's been called to go and prophesy to them, but told they won't see what you're saying and they're not going to listen to you. But this person, he does have eyes to see and he does have ears to hear. Uh not just seeing what people are doing or thinking or um, the, the surface level of what people are saying, but actually he's able to make judgments and decide disputes based off seeing with, as it were, spiritual eyes and hearing with spiritual ears. This is someone who delights in the fear of the Lord, that always does what the Lord wants them to do. And so they make these judgments and decide disputes in ways that are truly wise. Again, that's as opposed to Israel, who lack the perception to do God's will. We see God's concern for the poor. He's going to judge the poor. He's going to decide for equity among the meek of the earth. And again, earlier in Isaiah, chapters 1 to 5, we see that Israel's been rejecting the poor in their midst. Uh, we see that this person is going to uh, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He'll slay the wicked. Again, um, there's a, a bit of a double meaning here. On the one hand, it's the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. But on the other, there's a warning to Israel. Don't let this be you. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, then beware. You might meet the sword of this person. And then finally, in verse five, we get this great summary statement. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, I say it's a summary statement because what does a belt do? It ties everything together. Uh, and uh, if you have, uh, I don't know if the NIV Cultural Studies Bible references this, or there might be another resource that has, but um, the belt was sort of, had, had two significances, I guess. Uh, one was to gather up the outer robe that uh, people in the ancient Near East would wear, uh, and they would gather it up when they needed to do strenuous activity. And so in one sense, it's saying that righteousness and faithfulness are the qualities that bind everything else together for this servant. Yes, they're righteous. Yes, they judge justly. Yes, they have spirit endowed counsel and might and knowledge and, and all of that. But most important of their qualities is righteousness and faithfulness. So if we take this person as a sort of coming deliverer for the nation of Israel, then the most important thing about them is that they are righteous and faithful to God. 
There's another meaning as well uh, to loincloth here. So the faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. Um, loincloth, of course, was, was like underwear, essentially. It was worn under the garments. So you might say there that faithfulness is like the most basic and fundamental of all of his qualities. Uh, either way, righteousness and faithfulness are key. And I think for the Israelite hearing or reading this, they've got to be thinking, is this me? Do I have righteousness as the belt around all of these, these different qualities of my life? Am I faithful to God as sort of the uh, most basic and fundamental aspect of myself? And then after they've thought that through, they might cast their eyes to the horizon and go, Oh Lord, bring someone like that who will deliver us. So just going through verses 1 to 5 there, hopefully you can see uh, the sort of things that this, this exegetical approach can bring out. And resisting the urge to, to jump forward to Jesus as Messiah, which is absolutely fulfillment of this passage, but we want to stay within its context first of all. I'll give you just a couple of uh, really quick observations in, in verse 6 onwards. Uh, that second part there, of course, the wolf and the lamb, um, we might, as an Israelite, wonder, uh, is this picturing a real wolf and a real lamb lying down together? Or is this metaphorical of some sort? Um, I mean, for a, a wolf to no longer hunt the lamb, as it were, the leopard to no longer hunt the goat would fundamentally change the nature of the wolf. Um, is it still a wolf, really? Uh, well, uh, God can do that. Uh, but, but maybe we might even think that um, actually the, the wolf, the leopard, the lion, um, the bear, these all might just represent the foreign powers that have arrayed against Israel. Uh, and there's, uh, there's sort of some, some interesting thoughts around that. You know, a, a lion or a bear, they sort of invade areas. Maybe there's the international political element to that. Um, greed and cruelty, a, a wolf or a leopard were sort of viewed that way. You know, they, they hunt and then they scavenge. Uh, and so again, you know, there's an element of Babylon or Assyria there. Um, but um, nonetheless, the picture here is one of peacefully living together, not just the animals, but the people on the earth. And so this is picturing a time where Assyria and Israel will live together. Uh, maybe not all of Assyria, maybe not all of Israel, but people from both groups will be able to lie down together on God's holy mountain. Um, they, will, they will be there with the Lord. And um, just to, to jump all the way down to verse 12, uh, remember this, this language of the signal. Um, God will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So yes, Israel will come home. But verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And so, yes, they'll come home from Assyria just as they did from Egypt. But the nature of a highway is that, of course, it's not only used by one group of people. This takes us back to the imagery from Isaiah chapter 2, which, again, if you're an Israelite, you're you, this is maybe 15 minutes ago you've just heard chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we hear about God's holy mountain to which the nations will come. Not just Israel, not just Judah, but also the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And they won't come to invade, 
but to say, come, let us worship the Lord. Let us worship Yahweh. And if you were doing this as part of your daily Bible reading, you would in a few days hit Isaiah chapter 19, where in verse 23, we get this beautiful picture of Egypt coming to worship with the Assyrians. And so, again, for the people of Israel, they may be first hearing this going, ah, yes, God will bring us home. But then as they keep reading, they discover there's a bit more here. It's not just that God will bring us home. It's that God is going to bring the nations to us as well. These people who were our enemies, they're going to come and worship with us. The signal that goes up into all the nations saying, come home, come home, is not for Israel only, but also for the people who were their enemies, the people who the Lord God is calling, people who, uh, like Israel, are wicked and sinful, but being called home to the Lord their God by his gracious, faithful love. They'll come along the highway seeing the signal to worship Yahweh. And so, um, again, there's just this sense of this being bigger than Israel. Um, one more little thing just to point out in verse 6. Uh, there's this imagery of the little child. A little child shall lead them. In verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Now, obviously, at, at one level, we take that just as an image of peace. Wow, even children without adult supervision can, can live in this coming world, of course. Um, but there's also maybe the sense that, um, hey, in this world to come, a little child's going to be fit for leadership. You won't need a really mighty, gruff king who takes things into his own hands and wins amazing battles. And we've been seeing this in uh, 1 Samuel, of course. You never needed a human king, guys. <laughs> uh, you can be led by a little child in God's perfect world. Uh, there might even be just here a downplaying of Israel's hope in David and a Davidic king. Um, guys, th those times are gone. Um, you'll need someone uh, who doesn't embody those qualities, someone actually that's all about righteousness and faithfulness more than anything else. And uh, it brings us back to the question of who is that servant? As the Israelites read through the book of Isaiah, uh, we would get a, uh, a number of other surprising revelations of who that is. So in chapter 42, there's a reference to the servant actually being Cyrus, uh, the, the king of um, the, the Persians, who later would send the Israelites back home out of their exile. So he's the one that's going to bring them home, you know, an enemy king. Uh, but then we see it's not really Cyrus. It's, it's more Isaiah himself. Chapter 50 talks about him as, as sort of this suffering servant who has to set his face like flint because Israel's so wicked. Uh, but God uses him to bring wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and, and by his prophecies to enable Israel to persevere until they come home. We even see Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In some way, that refers to Isaiah. He was crushed by the people. He was pierced constantly by their words and their accusations. But he was the suffering righteous servant who spoke God's truth. And those who clung to his words were able to persevere as the remnant. But then, of course, even with those possible applications of, of who this servant is, ultimately, it's the Messiah. 
And so here's our, our second and final section here, very shortly. Of course, it's the Messiah, Jesus, on whom the Spirit of the Lord ultimately rests. Ultimately, it's him who embodies wisdom and understanding and fear of the Lord. He alone is truly righteous and truly faithful. And he's bringing a world that failed to materialize after the Israelites returned home from exile. Uh, the, the wolf never truly lay down with the lamb. The calf and the lion never truly sat down together. The little child never truly led the, the animals around or led the nation of Israel, right? Um, we still live in a world where you can't just live, leave a, a nursing child to play with a snake. <laughs> um, and we still live in a world where the nations are not all inquiring upon God's holy mountain to, to come and worship Yahweh, right? Uh, and so this, this world was only partially fulfilled in returning back from the exile. And the Israelites were left to look forward to a coming day when it would be fully realized. And we, of course, are looking forward to that day as well. We, like the Israelites, are here as sort of exiled people in the world. We're surrounded by hostility. We're surrounded by people who want nothing to do with the Lord, who hate Jesus and therefore hate us. We're surrounded by the pressures of an unholy world. Uh, but, of course, we look forward to a world to come where there will be peace, where people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together to worship the Lord and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And those of us who, like the remnant, are clinging to Jesus will be part of that world. Therefore, don't be discouraged in your exile, Isaiah says to us today. Instead, cling to the righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus, who will bring you home into a peaceful, perfect, God-worshipping world. There you go. whole lot of beautiful observations from this fairly random text in Isaiah. Uh, you might just want to grab one or two of those now and, and praise the Lord for them. Uh, and just to summarise where uh, our approach has taken us, um, We've, we've spent a lot of time this morning on observation, a little bit on meaning and a little bit on application. We've resisted the urge to jump straight to Jesus as the fulfillment of this passage, even though it's very obvious. And uh, in so doing, we've, we've drawn out a whole lot of richness from the content, for, sorry, from the, the context itself that packs into our observation when we bring Jesus into it. All right. Look forward to seeing you this Sunday. Um, I think we're going to go through an Old Testament narrative text, which will help us as we're continuing to navigate 1 Samuel. And I'll have that second exegetical principle for you as well. Look forward to seeing you then.